0: I discovered I was, or learnt that I was HIV positive. It was October 1982. I couldn't believe it, I was 33, you know. My life was only just beginning and here I was being given a death sentence. Now this story is, is, is based on, the, on, on, not just your story, but the, the group of you, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 the, the, the film is based in fact, but uh, Stephen has woven this amazing tale and it is, uh, it is incredible. The minute I met Jonathan, I thought, this guy's got to be a character. He was so charismatic and flamboyant. He
1: really played a key role in winning the
0: hearts and minds, not through political dialogue, but through personally being who he was. When he told me that one of the things about him that became famous in the Valley was that he loved to dance, I knew that there was the potential for an amazing filmic moment. There we are, all dancing, and this is me. Stephen has created this dance for Dominic West, <laughs> who plays my character. It could very easily not fit into the film, but it does, because it moves things along and it advances the themes. I love Dominic's performance in the film. and He really captures that sense of what Jonathan was all about. If I had ever been able to dance like he dances, I would have been a very happy lad. God, I miss disco.
1: So Mr. Jennifer Plague. yeah, legend, the man, the legend. Oh, no. no <laughs>
0: the poster the boy. The s- poster boy, yeah, I go with the poster <laughs> boy. The, sort of the, the legend I find kind of sort of, you know, I'm not dead. Well,
1: no, that's, <laughs> that is why you're a legend. You <laughs> defied. Yeah.
0: Did I defied them?
1: The Grim Reaper. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. I mean, sort of, that is... It, Remarkable. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure why. Have, yeah, you know, I can. I can only think that my parents must have blessed me with, uh, with particularly good genes, because you know, there's no explanation, to it. But um, then you're not the only one, are you? I think no, you, I'm not. You've got a friend, I mean, George. I the, have my friend George, and he was and, L5. Um, he was L5. But actually, I mean, what, what was interesting was that, that when they look back because they for some reason they had taken a whole lot of blood from him and stored it and that was taken in 1979 and when they went back and looked at it he already had HIV in 1979. Wow. So you know in terms of uh, of Longest surviving, sort of, I may have the number, but. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's got, got 40 he's got, years now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. just to put it into context, so I was born in April 1982.
0: Oh, wow. And you were diagnosed so in October. October. 1982.
1: So effectively, you've been S- living with the virus for as long as I've been alive.
0: Yes, I mean, sort of, you know, a few months short.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. depending when you contracted it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, sort of, it, it's interesting, I I think I know when I contracted it. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so I've been living with it longer, because I contracted it in round about February yeah. 1981, because I went to San Francisco for a very dear friend's wedding, and I actually stayed with George yeah. there, because he was a copywriter, and uh, so he'd been headhunted and was living there. So it was great. So I got to stay with him. And I love bathhouses. I've always loved bathhouses, and uh, and so I went to the bathhouses in San Francisco. And at that point, you know, there was something in the in the air, mm. but but there was nothing definite. The bathhouses hadn't been closed, what have you. Um, and yeah, so sort of uh, that's where I met my virus.
1: I was going to ask if you ever get tired of talking about it, but then I kind of realised as well. I was like the landscape and the conversation constantly changes like this year alone with Gav Thomas coming out and that's a whole new discussion yes so I think I see am I right to, to think that you'll never get tired because every every year there's something different to talk the, about there's
0: always something different to talk about I mean you know that's true I mean yeah from time to time one sort of <laughs> one, one, one does get tired but what is amazing and I think that the, that it's it's in recent years so once they had kind of um, found the fact that if you're on effective medication uh, and your viral load is undetectable you cannot pass the virus and when I heard that
1: that was
0: totally a game changer but not only a game changer in terms of the game changer was in one's head yeah that that I had lived with living with this virus concerned that I wasn't going to pass it on which of course has a huge effect on one's libido and mm. on sexual energy and, and what have you and I've never been good at uh, dealing with condoms Um. So suddenly, to actually be told that I cannot pass the virus, you know, even unprotected sex, I cannot pass the virus, is just so liberating. It's almost like going back to <laughs> <laughs> when you were thirty-three again. Yes. So go back you know. to
1: that. That I wanted to ask. So you met your partner when you were.
0: Was it thirty six? I guess you were? I, I, we, we met on the first of April, nineteen eighty three. Yeah. So, I would have been thirty four, and he would have been thirty seven. So he's three years older than me. And is he negative,
1: or was no. he? No, I mean, sort of. So did that draw you together? Do you think?
0: No, I mean, sort of basically I had uh, I had gone to uh, well I had gosh Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I was very isolated yeah Um, and after my diagnosis I had attempted suicide in uh, in the December of Mm -hmm. of 1982 couldn't do it I heard the voice of my mother in my head saying you know you clear up your own mess, Jonathan. You can leave it for others to clear up. And I just thought committing suicide is going to leave the most <laughs> unbelievable mess. Um And so I couldn't do it. So then it's a question of what you do. Well, you've got to get on and live. And how am I going to do that? You know, I got this killer virus coursing through my veins. My sort of um, self confidence is on the floor. Sort of, it's just. Terrible. I would go off to bars, and I would want to meet people, but I didn't want to meet people because I didn't want to have to explain. Right. You know. And I picked up this copy of Capital Gay, and there was this tiny advertisement: "Gays for a nuclear-free future." A running a coach from Gays the word on the first of April, nineteen eighty-three, at eleven o'clock. And I thought, all right that's going to be my entry back into society, I'm going to go to that. And I remember sort of, you know, waking up in the morning, sort of feeling sick to my stomach, but I was going to do it. I sort of, you know, girded my loins, I got myself dressed, I sort of got the tube. I was living in Shadwell in the East End, I got over to uh, to Russell Square tube station, I was walking out of the tube station, I had just got out, I could see the coach sort of up by gaze the word, and I thought, what the fuck am I doing here? And I was literally about to turn on my heels and flee. And this person said, hello, my name's Nigel, what's yours? And I was absolutely mm. stopped in my chank. and turned round, and there was this man who was wearing these ochre and, uh, and, uh, and crimson pantaloons, uh, green Wellington boots, Fair Isle sweater, this mop of black curly hair, and this most amazing smile. And I said, oh, I'm Jonathan. And that was it. And we just started talking and walked up and uh, spent the whole day on the coach, he introduced me to all his friends. I didn't think I would know anybody there, but actually sort of uh, I did because uh, Noel Gregg from Gay Sweatshop right. was there and I knew Noel sort of, I auditioned for him, I'd never sort of worked with him, but, uh, um, and it was just the most amazing. And we just talked and we 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 talked and did this incredible stand together. And there must have been, I don't know, 100,000 people so we, we basically, it was a human train around uh, Greenham Common, Burfield and Aldermaston which are the two British nuclear establishments and it was fabulous and then at the end of the day got back on the coach and Noel said right everybody back to his squat in West Hampstead for a party so we went back there and we're still chatting and then the next day um I invited Nigel to come over to my place in the East End. I had this lovely little flat. It was um North Block eleven, Elf Row, Shadwell. That was my Peabody estate. <laughs> flat. Um so he arrived and he arrived with a bunch of anemones and uh, and donuts. And he said, You know, you're living over here Isolated. I'm living in North London, but I know of a squat in Brixton. Why don't we move in together? And I thought, I'm going to be dead tomorrow, next week, or, you know, in two weeks' time. Why not? And that was my attitude, that, that since I'm going to be dead, you might as well just do it. Either don't do it or do it. Yeah. And, uh, and that was that. And so, sort of, he knew someone who wanted to sublet my flat, and uh, we moved in. And then we had to move out from uh, from that place for various reasons, I won't go into those, but uh, after three months. But he also, because he had lived in Brixton during the Rats, and in point of fact, he and a friend of his, he had got tickets to hear Janet Baker and Julia Caesar at the Colosseum. So it was a question of did they rat or did they go and see uh, Janet Baker, and they decided to go and see Janet Baker, which actually saved them from prison. Uh. So they left, went, came back, and of course the rats had erupted. There was sort of you know smouldering stuff everywhere, and uh, there were policemen not allowing them through. And I just said, but. I live up the road there, and they eventually let them back. They lived at uh, at one five nine, Relton Road, so across the garden. So you know, so he knew of of this uh, housing co-op and had heard that there were two rooms going in one four six, so two doors down. So we came up there and met with the people and asked if the rooms were still available, and they were, and could we. Come and live there? And they said, Yeah. And we joined the housing cop and the rest is history. And here thirty six years later or thirty four years later actually here. Um, still here. And I'll go out in a cardboard box. <laughs> you know. A wooden one. No. So <laughs> <not cardboard>. goes <laughs> like go back
1: a to your life before that. Um, so you were an actor. I was.
0: Well, I you was. still are. Yeah. No. No. But but I but mean, what's interesting is that 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 in 1981, kind of basically the sort of the business seemed to uh, to give me up. Right. Okay. So sort of. I mean, what you know, had you I, done? I was. I up was. A, I was a. I was a jobbing actor. Right. Yeah. Um. And I'd sort of. Uh, I started off. I was really fortunate. I went to to Rose Bruford. Um in 1967 to 1970. So really sort of interesting times because, like, you know, the law, we had just been partially decriminalised. Yeah. Not that it made any difference to me because, of course, sort of, uh, I, was, uh, I was under 21. You know, I was, what, 18. And so sort of uh, went there. But, of course, there was this whole sort of burgeoning sort of um, gay scene. And what was interesting was that there was still the hangover because, whereas before, you know, there were bars, but I mean, it was very kind of low key, the bars. People coming used over. to. Hi, Martin. Uh, people used to have. Is Michael coming over? I'm in an interview. Oh, sorry. That's all right, but he is later on. <laughs> um, that was a uh, that was a friend who is uh, who exercises my partner Nigel, ah, okay. yes. and uh, and there is another friend of ours who is going to come over this afternoon yeah. to see uh, to see Nigel, just for uh, <laughs> for the folks to <laughs> context. <laughs> it's not, yes, context. Context is <laughs> all. Um, yeah. So sort of uh, so what was really interesting was that sort of there is this 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 burgeoning sort of gay scene. But there are still people throwing house parties, right? Um, and so it was—it was amazing because you actually got to meet people in their homes, and then you would meet other people there. And so there, there was this kind of sort of you—you you got to meet people, you know, in their own environment as opposed to just in bars and in clubs, where there's kind of no context. Um, so that was that was really interesting, and and I had some really extraordinary experiences, sort of you know, from that. Um, but sort of, yeah, you know, it was fabulous. I would come up to to London because I was you know Rose is in Sidcup. Sidcup. Yeah, I had never uh-huh. heard of. Well, I'd heard of Sidcup, but only in the context of the caretaker. Right. Yes. That sort of you know he lives in Sidcup. That's <laughs> the only time I'd ever heard of it. <laughs> Okay. So, sort of, you know, we were known as the Virgins by the lake, by sort of Lambda and RADA, because mm-hmm. we were out of London, and there was this lake by in Lambertby Park, where Rose Ruford's, uh College is. Um, anyway, I mean, it, it was extraordinary. So, I would come up to London at, to, at weekends, and I would sort of, you know, go to uh the king's road and there were three bars on the king's road so uh, there was the coalville there was the markham arms and there was queen's head and so one would kind of parade from one to the other and i was you know it was, it was the flower power wasn't it and i'd got sort of you know flowing scarves and uh, and uh, ratty old sort of rabbit fur coats and things and and I would wear tights rather than trousers i mean it's just you know but it was it was amazing i mean it was extraordinary just extraordinary and i remember sort of you know going cruising in uh, in Hyde park and and there was this gig going on and it was the rolling stones <laughs> and i just came across it you know by happenstance because, of course, you know, they're not fenced they're not off fenced in those days. It was just open. It was open to, to anyone. Wow. I mean, that was just, you know... So there were all these just extraordinary... They were they were really amazing sort of days. And then sort of uh, I finished at, at Rose Bruford and I sort of uh, got a job uh, as... My first job was as a, an acting ASM at Derby Playhouse and I was there for a, for a year. And then, you know... One would sort of finish one job, and I would have periods of being out of work. But it was fairly easy because you could get jobs in restaurants. Mm. So I would sort of do that, and then get another job. And so, yeah, I was I was basically a jobbing jobbing actor. And uh, then I got a job um, for the BBC for television called The Regiment and we had done all the studio uh, filming or recording Um, and they were going to film the outside scenes because it's set in uh, in the Boer war in South Africa and they were going to do the external shots later in the year um, of basically the first concentration camps because mm. concentration camps come from th- the Boer War um, and so I was put on a retainer nice. which was amazing now in the sort of interim period I had been to one of these uh, these parties met a, uh, uh, a mad um, fabric designer called Joel Levitt, nice Jewish boy And uh, he said, I have this uh, friend who would just really love you. He comes to London twice a year um, because he's a buyer for Bloomingdale's. And they basically would come to this country and go to all the various sort of fashion shows and and in Paris and things, see what sort of, you know, the best uh, designs were and buy a sample and then have them knocked off in uh, Japan. Nice. <laughs> to sound, yeah, yeah. To sell in uh, in Uh Anyway, so he said, "Is it all right if uh, if I give you, um, or give him your phone number?" And I said, "Of course." Now you have to remember that this is before mobile phones. Yeah, things, so it is landlines. And I was lucky because I always, wherever you know, whatever bedsit I was living in, there Maybe had landline. to be a telephone. Yeah. In the hallway so I gave the uh, the number and that was that and as luck would have it I was in I get this phone call from Bernie Oza, would I come and uh, like to meet him for lunch at the Connaught? so I said oh yes so I kind of smartened myself up and arrived there but I didn't have a, a, a jacket and I didn't have a tie and when I arrived at the restaurant the maitre d wouldn't let me in I said but I'm coming to meet Bernard Rosa. so he said I will go and fetch Mr Oza <laughs> so he brought Mr Rosa over and uh, Bernie said I'm sure you can find a jacket for, uh, for my guest and then took me off to buy me a, a tie So I got a kipper tie because they were all in rage, Um, and we we had a fabulous time chatting away. And he said, you know, if uh, if you're ever fancy coming to New York, you know, just come. You can come and stay. And I thought, oh yeah, Charles will be a fine thing. And that was that. Suddenly, I have this retainer from the BBC. I've got money, and I thought, all right. So I. Went to uh, to phone him, <laughs> lots of coins <laughs> to to put in, but basically said, you know, did you really mean that that uh, you know if I could get my airfare, I could come and stay? And he said, yeah. So I did. So I bought the ticket, eighty pounds return, and uh, and went. And this was one September, and had the most amazing time. Wow. I mean. I arrived, there was a car at JFK Airport to, uh, to greet me. Driven in, we came over the 59th Street Bridge. You're seeing all the sort of, you know, these skyscrapers that I've only seen in films, you know, all yeah. these black and white films. You know, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, the Pan Ambul- I mean, just extraordinary. So we go over the sort of 59th Street Bridge um, and arrive at a place called Serendipendis so we meet that's fine and just my head was totally turned I mean I went to see um, the first night of Greece on Broadway wow. I saw Bette Midler in her first concert at Carnegie Hall after leaving the Continental Baths yeah. um, I went to Bernstein's Mass at the Met so follies. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And um, they said, you know, um, you know, if you want to come here and work, we've have friends in Washington. They can get you a green card. And I thought, oh yeah, that's nice. Anyway, went back, and uh, I was doing pantomime in <laughs> uh, in Swansea, which is kind of important because, like, sort of. Um, my mother was born in Swansea in 1914 January 1914 her father was a rabbi um, but in the march they emigrated to Canada Okay. so she left and, uh, and that was that so Swansea was kind of it was already in my consciousness so here I am playing sort of pantomime I'm the uh, the slave of the lamp in Aladdin and it was fabulous there was sort of Reg confidentially Dixon, because he had his uh, patter song. Uh, He was the dame. There were this wonderful couple, Anna Lou and Maria, who had this uh, this bird and uh, and dog act, (laughs) the speciality act. But it was also, it was the uh, the first minor strike. So there was the Um. three day week. Okay. so you would get electricity for three weeks and not for four so the company bought an old ship's fog light <laughs> which just gave this blinding white light and had a generator and so on the days that there was no electricity the generator would go on and the show would go on Amazing. so it was, it was extraordinary so, sort of, uh, so we did that and at the same time they are filming the uh, the exterior scenes of the concentration camp in Neath, nice, up on the sort of the heaths above uh, above Neath. Uh, nice. So I had this sort of crazy idea that that well crazy situation where sort of a car would come and meet me from my digs, take me to. Uh, to shoot, you know, the, the few scenes that, uh, that I had, and then drive me back to the theatre. So I went theatre Wow. Yeah, so sort of, uh, so yeah, so, so that was that. And then I had this period when sort of, I didn't seem to be getting a, a, a great deal, I mean a few jobs, but not a lot and sort of ringing in my head was this idea that sort of I could get the green card and uh, all be fine so I thought I'd going to go and find fame and fortune in uh, in New York because I'd had such an amazing time I thought yeah let's let's go back there so I did but what had happened in 1973
1: oh you're asking me I wasn't even born oh you weren't born of course 82 I was
0: yeah well Watergate right yes so nobody in Washington was doing anything and their friend was Kissinger's sister but nothing so I'm arrived there and no green card and uh, so my friend Bernie says well we'll get you a lawyer we'll you know I'm sure they'll sort you out oh yeah anyway so I go to meet with this lawyer and this lawyer looks at me and says but who are you he said I can't even get Peter Firth who'd just been playing sort of you know an equus on Broadway I can't even get Peter Firth's green card you (laughs) so that was that so I sort of you know worked Ah. worked in uh, in restaurants had an amazing time, an amazing summer, I mean, you know, did the steam bars, I mean, just it, it was it was extraordinary went to Fire Island the works and then sort of uh, I was working in, in, uh, in a restaurant on the Upper East Side and there was a guy there called John who I sort of uh, was working with and he was an actor and he was going out on tour and he said sort of um, would you like to rent my apartment? I've got a studio apartment. It's in the Ansonia Building. The Ansonia Building, which is where the Continental Baths were. And I thought, yeah. And I then got a job on the west side in a in a restaurant that was right opposite Lincoln Centre. So one was making stacks of money. It's just ridiculous, you know, the way they tip this fish restaurant so I worked there and I lived in the Ansonia building and that was amazing and then it reached kind of October and I thought you know I am not going to get to work as an actor and I really do want to Mm. so I came back to this country and uh, you know again started sort of working as a jobbing actor and I had some good jobs and and some fun times and and it was it was great you know that was fine and then I got a film in 1980 and I thought this is it, this is a big feature and I'm just, everything's going to change and it was called From a Far Country and it was the life of Karol Wojtyla, the, uh, the Polish Pope, John Paul II. And I'd been booked for, for two weeks. And I arrived there and this character is a character called Joseph and he's um, a Jew living in the ghetto and is rescued from the, the ghetto. And they kept writing up the part. So although I'd been booked to be there for two months, I was eventually there for three months. Uh. So two weeks, three months I was there. And this character sort of, basically he kind of sort of he joined the uh, the uh, the communist party and uh, was with the partisans, and he then sort of rises, sort of up, so that he sort of almost gets to being like sort of you know the the top guy in the communist party in uh, in Krakow, and he's a teacher at uh, at the university, and then in nineteen sixty nine. They threw all the Jews out of uh, of their jobs. I mean, it was almost as though World War Two never yeah. happened. I mean, it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know about this. Wow. Um, and so he's kind of thrown out, and blah blah blah. But anyway, so I just thought this is great, you know. Going to sort of uh, find fame and fortune, become a household name. <laughs> Nothing. Nada. <laughs> <laughs> And so then I was back working at Joe Allen's. And, and that, was, that was amazing, that, that I was always really lucky that, that in 1978 Joe Allen's opened. Well, 1977 Joe Allen's opened. Joe Allen's is this... Yeah, it's still going, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's, it, you know, in New York, the original Joe yeah. Allen's prides itself on all the waiters are out-of-work actors. Yeah, yeah. So the same was going to be in London. And so I went and applied for a job and got a job and it was great because it meant that whenever I got a job, I could leave there mm-hmm. and there would always be a job for Maybe. me. So I went back to uh, to work at uh, at Joe Allen's and I worked there <laughs> and I worked there and there was no nothing was coming in, in terms of theatre. But what was great was that mates who were in the West End would come in and eat. So you know, one was seeing yeah. sort of friends and things. And it was, it was lovely and, you know, um, so that was good. And then kind of round about sort of, I suppose, July of that year, I began to sort of feel unwell and like sort of my lymph nodes were, yeah. were getting painful. And I didn't know sort of, you know, what this, this was. And... Eventually, I could no longer work there, and uh, so I sort of, you know, had to to stop, but because I had been working there for over 12 months, I'd actually been working there 15 months by the time I finished, I got sick pay, and I got holiday pay, which if I'd been an actor, I'd have got nothing, which kind of tidied me over. and. I eventually sort of, you know, things were so bad I was walking like a gorilla. I mean, every lymph node sort of under my armpits, in my groin. So I was just really and in a lot of of pain. And um, so I went to my GP, made an appointment, went to see her and arrived. And as I walked in the door, she got up. And she said shake my hand and as I'm shake my hand she feels yeah. in this lymph node there which was really painful I mean ow what did you do that for she said that's the sailors handshake whenever the sailors used to go into port they would shake the women or the men's hand and if that was uh, that uh, node was up it was a sign of syphilis and they wouldn't go with them right. so she said you know, have you had a test for syphilis recently? So I said, well, I've had syphilis, but no. So she said, I suggest you go to the special clinic. So I took myself down to uh, James Pringle House, which is where I went, which is part of the Middlesex Hospital. That was the CLAP clinic I went to. And I arrived there, and they were all over me. Mm. And they saw them, and they were huge, and they said they wanted to do a biopsy. So they put me onto a side ward. Gay boys were always put on side wards in those days. I don't know why, but... You know, not, to, uh, not to infect our homosexuality or <laughs> the rest of the public. I don't know. Anyway, I'm in there, and there is one other person who is in there, and he is on death's doorstep. Yeah. I mean, it was just like... And... I suddenly realised that I knew him and that I'd been out on tour in 1976 with Love's Labour's Lost which we'd done in Regent's Park yeah. and I'd met him in Norwich and we'd had this fleeing for a week in Norwich and wow. he's lying in this bed, I mean he's, he's out of it so I'm not going to sort of go oh I know you um, and that was that anyway they did the biopsy and I'm then have to wait for two or three days for the results to come back and they come back and they say "Uh, this isn't good news you've got a virus which is called HTLV3 it's a terminal diagnosis we have nothing that we can offer you there is no medication Um, and that is that and I'm 33 years old yeah and my life is over, and then they say you can go. <laughs> I mean, and at this point, one is beginning to hear kind of sort of rumblings that all is not well. And, and you saw the guy in the and room. I'd seen the the guy in the room, and sort of it it had never even dawned on me. Right. Um, anyway, so that was that. Yeah. I mean, they they did say there is palliative care. I mean, we are blessed that we have a national yeah, health service because, yeah. like, sort of, if it had been America or France or anywhere else, I mean, there there was nothing, you know. And uh, so, yeah.
1: So I suppose, it, on reflection, it must be, have changed so many times over the years. Because I was talking to someone recently about if you were to get diagnosed today, how that would impact you, and it's no longer carries that death sentence, but it's still—it's so still shocking. Yeah, it still has that kind of resonance.
0: Yes, and it interests. And there's still a huge amount of stigma yeah. around it, so that 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 you know you you get this diagnosis and you're having to deal with all of that. So sort of you know, for for but then at your
1: st- stage of it, oh. was there a stigma beginning to? Oh, that was did already. Did that develop?
0: Yes. I mean, the stigma developed because, you know, the 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 right wing press. Yeah. Just they talked about it. But that it. came it, later, didn't it? it? was well, th- you know, they started talking about sort of, you know, that that there is this gay plague. Um, that sort of that that we've you know our behaviour you know yeah. it's it's brought we've brought it on ourselves mm-hmm. I mean so they just you know they were they were after us I mean sort of you know they've never been sort of uh, fond of, uh, of, of of homosexuals and mm-hmm. queers and what have you um, and this was just they had you know it was like they had carte blanche to just um, go after us so sort of you know there was there was all that sort of build-up and the fact that you know you have got um, a a disease for which there is no cure and the fact that it's a killer virus Yeah. so you know suddenly you know you're a modern-day leper because like sort of you know who's going to want to sort of have anything to do with you or in one's head so there's a lot of self-stigma but yeah. sort of, um, yeah. So it was, it was difficult. It was, it was really, 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 really sort of, um, really bleak.
1: And you speak about that a couple of months after your diagnosis, where you considered suicide. Yeah. Do you now, thirty-six years later, look back and reflection and think, I'm
0: <laughs> so pleased I never went through yeah. it. Yeah. 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 No. 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 That must resonate every day. I mean, yeah. I mean, in in a in a way, I think that that. I mean, it's interesting. Sort of, it it used to. It's it's kind of disappeared. I've, right. I've got a bit more kind of I don't know what the word is. Kind of sort of just, blasé about mm. it. Maybe. Um, there is still, you know, there is still this notion of survivor Guild. Oh um, really? And that's some, yeah, yeah. No, no. That's that's something you know cuz one, one lost a, a lot of friends yeah and sort of there is that sense why them why not me you know right. and it's kind of you know it's not like sort of oh i'm beating myself up no. about it but there was a period when it was i found it it really really sort of um difficult but that was sort of you know at the time that there really sort of you know that there there was still nothing and then you had the whole debacle with uh, with AZT. Yeah. Because um, I remember sort of. So, for being, those who
1: don't realize, so this was a pill that was.
0: It was a it was what developed. Was, it was a, it was a failed chemotherapy yep. drug. And, you know, the the company, GlaxoSmithKline, blah, um, basically, the um, it, as far as I was concerned, they decided that you know. It had failed as a chemotherapy drug. Let's use it on them because we might be able to make some money back off it. Wow, yeah, that's my—that's how you feel, yeah. you know. And and for so you, refused I was, to take it, didn't you? Yeah, basically, what happened was that that I was asked if I would join the Concord mm-hmm. um, cohort, um, and. So what they were doing was that, that they explained that you, you, you have a, a cohort and you split it down the middle and one half gets the pill and the other half gets the placebo. So I just asked, because I thought it made sense, I said, well, if you're going to, do you pair us off? So someone who's got like a similar bill to me or or metabolism is going to sort of get the uh, the pill Um or you know one of us will get the pill and the other will get the placebo yeah. and then you see which one does best. and they went oh no 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 that's far too complicated and I just saw red yeah and I said well if you could put a line down the middle of me and this is just being ridiculous you know but if you put a line down the middle of me and you give one half of me the pill and the other half of the placebo and we see which side does best that I think is a trial but if you can't be bothered to do that, I can't be bothered to do your yeah. trial. Wow. And that basically saved me because everybody who I know, well, bar one or two. So
1: these pills but, effectively had the counter effect. They, they were killing people.
0: Yeah. What they did was they did what all old uh, chemotherapy drugs was. They completely wiped out the immune system. Mm-hmm. So it left you open to any opportunistic infection that's um, around. And so PCP, CMV, retinitis came in, and that's what what killed them. So it wasn't the the medication didn't kill them. The medication allowed for their immune systems to to be vulnerable. Totally. Wow. So that was, yeah. And there were a lot of people, you know, I, I suppose that I'm I'm slightly weird in that I kind of... I didn't care if I died. Yeah. Um, which is weird, because life is precious. Yeah. And I do think life is precious, and what's the same. But I just kind of... I was in this sort of head space and for quite some time that I really didn't care. You know, if I died, I died. That, yeah. That was, that was it. Um, so, to me, it's always been... You know, it's quality of life, not quantity of life. As long as I had a good quality of life, I was happy. But you know, I didn't want, I didn't need to live. I don't need to live to a hundred. You know, that's that's not important. What is important is that that I have a a quality of life. Yeah. Around. So yeah.
1: And then during that, after you were first saying no, so interim years did you did you still have a desire to act was it or did that kind of change you no,
0: basically you know the business had, had, had given me up and, right and and that was that and so um, what was amazing you know um, Ken Livingston was the leader of the GLC mm-hmm. and you know he has a bad press and you know which is difficult but he had this amazing policy because when he was leader of the GLC he also was in charge of the Inner London Education Authority and he brought in this uh, this policy that if you were out of work and unemployed you could pay one pound and you could do any number of courses at Lit, Morley College, any other education thing for a year. Yeah. And it was incredible. So Nigel and I, I met Nigel by this time, Nigel and I would go off and do all kinds of things um, and one day he was going off with a friend of his, Barry Prothero to do a trouser making class and I said oh that sounds fun can I come along? Yeah, the more the merrier so we go along and there's a, a, another education place called The Strand which is on Tulse Hill so it's not far from here and we arrive there and we're on the fifth floor, it's in this sort of uh, what had been a, a, an old school and we were up on the fifth floor and it was the uh, the um, what had been the old science buildings so there are these tall tables where the Bunsen burners would have been and the first thing that Harry says is right I want you to sit up on the table crossed-legged mm-hmm. my father used to sell furniture if you ever sat on a table, you were screamed at, get off the table, <laughs> chairs for sitting on, not table. So Harry, with one phrase, had given me permission. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, sort of, you know, tatting. So originally, tailors used to have sit on the table with a board across their legs, and that is what they use to make the garments. So I'm sitting there tatting, thinking, how many pairs of trousers do I need? Really what I need to learn is how to make a pattern. And somebody pipes up, oh, they do that at the London College of Fashion. Well, I've paid my pound. (laughs) So I go down to the London College of Fashion in shortage and enrol for a pattern-making class. And I'm loving it. I've really kind of taken to it. you know, it's a nice challenge. And one of the tutors says, oh, by the way, I don't know if you might be interested, but we do this three-year City and Guilds tailoring course. I thought, <laughs> I'm going to be dead before I finish that, so there's no way. But yeah, why not? You know, the minor strike is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll keep me occupied, keep me busy. Because in my head, as long as I could keep myself busy and occupied, I could outrun the virus. Yeah, yes, this, this was head. So sort of um, I enrolled and I got a sort of, uh, basically I, uh, I got uh, a job, I mean I, I, I got a place and, and I applied to, uh, to Lambeth for a grant saying, you know, if, uh, if you can't see your way to give me a grant you are condemning me to a life on the dole. Anyway they gave me a grant so, so that was sort of great. And then suddenly, like, three years is up, Wow! and i finished, and what am I going to do? Because I can't go and work down Savile Row, because, well, so that's, uh, that's out of the question. And um, another tutor says, well, oh, I can't get you a job, but I could get you an introduction to the wardrobe at English National Opera. And I thought, oh, I love opera. It's so <laughs> overblown. Theatre holds no mystique for me. So yeah, so I get the, uh, the interview. I go to the workroom. Um, I've been told to go and sit in the workroom to wait for my interview. And everybody is busy sort of on the machines and I'm feeling very nervous and I really don't want to engage in conversation. So I'm looking at the, uh, at the sort of the, the posters on the wall and whatever on their notice boards. And suddenly my eye hits on this letter from St Mary's Hospital, Paddington, thanking everybody in the workroom for all the support that they give given this guy called Peter, who had been the head cutter in the men's end, who had just died from HIV AIDS. Really? And I thought, I want to work here because yeah. when I get ill, they'll understand. I'm not going to tell them, it'll be all by osmosis, but they'll at least understand it. Right. And I did my interview, and basically the uh, the manager said, look, I can't offer you a full-time job because we're still in negotiations with the union, with Uh but I could offer you full-time freelance. And I thought, all right, I'll take that. The uh, And it was the most amazing apprenticeship. Mm. It was just...
1: And did you wonderful. not tell anybody then about... No, no. I mean,
0: all my friends... Maybe. you know knew um, but uh, but sort of uh, I never told my parents um, but my younger brother who having been through Oxford right. come out of Oxford working in the home office thought I never wanted to do this I always wanted to be a doctor yeah. so he went and retrained at uh, Birmingham Medical School came out sort of uh, was uh, uh, a junior doctor, came up to London, worked at the Westminster Hospital, when the Westminster Hospital, before it, you know, was closed down, um, and uh, became the Chelsea and Westminster. But he worked in the Kobler. You know, they have to go and do different, you know, they go around different okay. um, continents. Yeah. And uh, and so he'd worked at the Kobler. So I was able to tell him, because when I got ill, he would be able to explain to my parents, because right. there's so much misinformation yeah. going on. So I've been incredibly fortunate in uh, in that way. So, yeah. And then when did you become an activist? When, how did that come about? Well, basically, when I sort of met Nigel, N- Nigel... Um, had always been really politically active. He was a member of the Gay Left Collective um, back in the 70s. He with Emmanuel Cooper and Philip Derbyshire and Simon Watney. I mean, amazing. Geoffrey Weeks. I mean, sort of just extraordinary people. Um, So he'd always been sort of active. And um, when he heard that uh, lesbian, uh, LGSM, Lesbian and Gay Men Support the Minors was starting up, it was obvious we'd go and join them. yeah and so that was kind of what you know brought me into it had always been you know as a as a as an actor one had to you know uh, be a member of equity but I always thought trade unions were really really important yeah. so and, that, and I suppose that even though my, my my mother was by nature a socialist though she <laughs> was for, voted Tory because <laughs> Her, her basically um when they moved to they moved to, to Canada they went to Winnipeg they lived in the house on stilts um their chickens sort of running around underneath them and I thought why on stilts and of course they have winters don't they so snow is yeah of course. so you have to be above the, the snow that so anyway um so then sort of and i don't know the reasons that he was orthodox my my grandfather um my maternal grandfather um, but for some reason in 1924 he turned reform and there's no one i can ask why did that happen i wish i could but anyway um and they moved from uh winnipeg to montreal and I remember my mother always talking about skiing down Mont Royal, but you know, as a like twelve year old. Um anyway, um they got there in nineteen twenty-four. In nineteen twenty-six, at the age of forty-four, he died of a heart attack and they were left penniless. They had to sell everything that they had, and he had this amazing library apparently. And there are one or two books that have survived, have oh. they? Um but um, her aunt, her mother's aunt, so my grandmother's sister, had married a man called Louis Silkin. Louis Silkin was a solicitor. Um, he had a mistress, and his mistress said to him, "You know, if you want to get on, you need to join a um, political party. Well, he couldn't join the Tories because in those days the Tories wouldn't take Jews. I mean, you know, we're talking about the the 20s. So he joined the Labour Party. And, you know, I don't know exactly what his job was, but whatever it was, he was given a hereditary peerage by the Labour Party. Eventually. Um, So they essentially sold up and they came and they moved back to this country and they actually lived in Dulwich because that's where Louis Silkin and Rosa lived. So my mother basically, although they had got maidservants, manservants, everything That the the three silken boys. So there was Arthur was the eldest, and there was John and Sam who were the uh, three boys. Never had to lift a finger. My mother's elder sister was Anne was a journalist. She was older than my mother, so she was a working journalist. So it was only my mother that was there as this child. And she was made skiffy. Skivvy. And my mother vowed that she was going to have three boys and they would all be house trained. And they were. We were. <laughs> <laughs> but what was amazing was that she used to walk down Relton Road every day to get a bus from Morley's down to Elephanton Castle. And I remember when I'd moved in here thinking, God, I'm gonna to have to tell my parents that I live in Rel- just off Relton Road and all they'll think of is the rats and what have you but hey-ho I'm living here so I need to tell them and I remember sort of saying oh well um, i live, um moved into this uh, house and it's just off uh, Relton Road expecting thing and my mother went oh I used to walk down every day, Relton uh, Road. Right. So she remembered it when it was smart. Yeah. Because it was middle class. Kind of so, I, yeah, extraordinary. It's just weird this kind of how everything seems to be so extraordinarily interconnected in terms of that. So then sort of, you know, becoming part of, of LGSM, where do we go? South Wales. To this sort of mining community, and that was just amazing in itself. But I was in pantomime in Swansea during the first miners' strike, so there are all these—it's—it's it's, it's weird. Love
1: it. Love it. Do you ever look back over your life now, as a seventy-year-old man, and kind of think that? Could you ever imagine what your life would be? Or who who you would be had you not contracted it?
0: No, no, I don't. I I never th- I never think about that. All all I think about is that if I hadn't met Mister Young, yeah. I'd be dead. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. No no no. Without Keeps without you alive. Doubt. Yeah. I mean, sort of. Even though I'd said you know I, you know couldn't commit suicide i I don't think that I would have handled right you know
1: support the lack of needed bills. Yeah. And
0: i i mean just I just fell into this most amazing support network when well, you talk so about
1: community and obviously this sense of so back then when people took to the streets and and I think you've mentioned in an interview recently about its activism is now quite isolated, people just sit at home and click on a petition. It's, yeah. They've lost that sense of let's all rally together and
0: Yeah, I think that I think I don't think that they've lost it because no, it does change. It just changes it it, isn't? It, yeah. it 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 happens. Um, and it's made but it's much more difficult yeah to to to, to or it seems more difficult to capitalize, but actually, you know, extinction rebellion, wow. Yeah. They you know, they've they've got people sort of uh, out on the street so you know there's there's been lots i mean there's sort of you know the this sort of you know um anti-brexit they've sort yeah. of come out in there in their sort of millions so it does happen you know it happens sort of uh against the iraq war that that there but it's not it it doesn't seem to be the same way that that it was before but then, you know, with all the draconian sort of anti-Union uh, anti, um, legislations that sort of the Tory party sort of brought in, right. the Fatcher brought in, um, I think that sort of, you know, you didn't get the same kind of things. And then gay pride. Gay pride was always a demonstration. Yeah. Um, but suddenly it was almost as though once sort of... And, you know, we had that amazing march in 85 with the miners. I mean, sort of, you know, that the, they arrived. I mean, it, it, it actually happened. It's not a figment of the film's imagination. It happened. Um, they, they arrived. They brought with them the red band. Um, and there were sort of... There probably were sort of, I don't know, sort of a 1,000-plus know people who'd come up from South Wales to join sort of um, gay pride so much so that the organizers seriously said you know there are too many of you you will have to lead the march and you got a hand. <laughs> so you know we'd been told that that you know political groups go to the back because that's where we always yeah. were yeah um, so yeah but then after that it all seemed to change and maybe some of that was to do with the fact of, of of HIV and AIDS and and that kind of sort of just drained the community. Um, and there was a lot sort of, of sadness, you know, in those, uh, those early years. I mean, it was like kind of... It was like I imagine it must have been in the First World War right. that there was just... Such a decimation of sort of young people, and, you know, young men particularly, but but of young people, um, that it kind of takes the heart out of of community. So, yeah, but it's it's back, it is back. Are you? What do you think
1: is the future? I don't know. Do you think I mean, we're doing enough?
0: No, I don't think we are doing. I, I certainly don't think that that you know him with the gas fire going on. Um, but I, 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 What really sort of I am really sort of um, concerned for for like my my nieces, my nephews, my my great niece and nephew in terms of what we have left yeah. them. Um, because I think that sort of this panic is hurtling to kind of sort of basically destruction unless we really put the brakes on. And there's part of me that that feels that that there are just business interests that are so kind of caught up, and the likes of sort of you know Trump, just uh, climate change deniers. Yeah. Um, and suddenly it'll be too late. I mean, they're saying, you know, we've got eight to ten years to, to really sort of change our ways and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, get rid of fossil fuels and, and, you know, head towards sort of, you know, green energy. And I don't know whether it'll happen. One has to hope that it will, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Do
1: you think you'll reach 100?
0: Nah, <laughs> I think you must listen. I'm, I'm, I am amazed that that I hit seventy. I mean, you know, I never thought I would hit forty, and then yeah. it was fifty, and then it was sixty, and then it was sixty-five, but that's fine. You know, I've hit seventy, and I've been amazingly fortunate. You know, I live in a, in this housing cooperative. Our rents are reasonable. Um, we're kind of, it is a community, yeah. um, which sometimes makes one slightly lazy, you don't, you don't need to go out to, to, to create community because it's on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean sort of, um, I don't know, it's, it's fine. It's, uh, I think that that my generation, we have been really kind of fortunate know, we had free education, we had the National Health Service, Um, and yeah, it's, one has seen a lot, I can't really believe that I'm sort of as old as I am, I'm kind of, you know, I'm as old as my parents were, (laughs) but yeah, it's... uh, But there's... I mean, what's great is that there's lots to do, you know, so that that around sort of, you know, HIV and dealing with stigma, um, I'm really kind of sort of passionate at, you know, adding my voice wherever I can to that. I'm really happy to talk about it because I just think that it's really important that it is spoken about, you know, so that sort of people get to understand... You know that uh, that we're just human beings, but sort of yeah. So there's 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 lots there's lots of uh, lots to be positive about. Amazing. Yeah. Uh,
1: thank you very much. No, for it's, to it's, me. It's, it's been, been an honour,
0: Thank you. No, no. You know. It's, it's great. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) We should
1: ensure, insist, as a basic right for every person living with HIV, no matter where they are in the
0: world, that they should have access to treatment. So the good news is your gonorrhea is easily treatable.
1: Uh, Can I have a test for HIV as well? Sure. I'm executive director of 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 an organisation called Nam Publications, um, and one of the things which we do is uh, provide information about HIV uh, through our website AIDSmap. <laughs>